one thing that banks and lenders in general are incredibly conservative about right now is forbearance. I mean, the entire mortgage industry, just like the rest of the country we are learning, lives paycheck to paycheck. And if you're a mortgage lender, your paycheck is someone else's mortgage payment. So when someone makes a mortgage payment, that's your paycheck. And it turns out that with forbearance, they didn't really think it through all the way. They were just trying to you know, get something out the door and get some legislation passed. As a week and a half ago, it looked like if someone went into forbearance and wasn't making their payments, you, the lender, were still on the hook to forward those payments to the bondholders, even if you weren't receiving those payments from the borrower. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Chris Mason back to give us an inside scoop on how the lending industry has been affected by the COVID-19 crisis. With the shelter-in-place mandate, thousands of people are now unemployed. People aren't making their mortgage payments, and underwriters are becoming incredibly conservative and denying loans. In this episode, we'll be going over the new lending standards and what you need to know about getting a loan in the current environment. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday, and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years, and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, Download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Chris, thank you so much for coming back on the show today. For those of you who haven't heard our episode with Chris before, Chris, do you want to introduce yourself again and briefly go over what you do? Sure. My name is Chris Mason. I'm an independent mortgage broker here in the uh, Bay Area. We lend throughout California. Perfect. And for today's episode, we're going to go over the lending industry and how it's changed significantly since shelter in place and the whole coronavirus incident. So Chris, welcome back to our show. I'm very excited to see what has changed in the lending space. Sure. Good to be here. A lot has changed. It's been a very eventful uh, month and a half, two months. So do you want to go ahead and just give us kind of like a breakdown of what's changed in the past month or so? Sure. So the first thing that happened as soon as this pandemic hit and shelter in place happened is the higher risk loan programs started falling by the wayside. So you're a hard money lender. A competing product in your space is the non-QM space. QM stands for qualified mortgage. A non-QM mortgage is a non-qualified mortgage, which means it does not follow all of the Dodd-Frank, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type rules. So it'd be alternative documentation, things like, hey, we'll work with you if you're one month out of foreclosure, or we'll work with you um, if you have to use bank statements to document your income instead of tax returns. Those loan programs almost entirely died overnight. So that was the first big change that happened. A lot of the hard money lending type stuff, you could talk about this more than I could, but a lot of that stuff got a lot more conservative really quick. Um, So very quickly, it became a a game of, is this loan in some capacity backed by the full faith and credit of the United States federal government? Yes or no. And if not, then your LTV is going to be low, your interest rates going to be high, your points are going to be high and all that. So a lot of it has, you know, the marketplace has kind of shrunk down to what is backed by the federal government. There's an index called the Mortgage Credit Availability Index, which basically reflects how hard or easy is it to get a mortgage at all. Um, it's not talking about interest rates or any of that. It's talking about can you get a mortgage at all. For jumbo mortgages in particular, which is for loan amounts in the Bay Area over 765, it dropped 40%, which is pretty staggering. So that's what's going on right now. Yeah, I saw an article a couple of weeks ago about how Chase, or I guess JP Morgan, is no longer doing jumbo loans. 
they've increased their lending standards to, I think, you need like a 700 credit score to get a loan. Yeah, if, if you want Chase to even look at you as of now, first-time homebuyer traditionally, especially here in the Bay Area, traditionally your first-time homebuyer is putting three and a half, five, maybe 10% down. Um, Chase, as of now, won't even look at you, according to what they say, unless you have a 700 FICO score and 20% down. So they basically cut off first-time buyers for the most part. Yeah. How does that work? Because if they're going to sell the loan to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac anyway, like why does it matter? Well, what's one thing that banks and lenders in general are incredibly conservative about right now is forbearance. I mean, the entire mortgage industry, just like the rest of the country we are learning, lives paycheck to paycheck. And if you're a mortgage lender, your paycheck is someone else's mortgage payment. So when someone makes a mortgage payment, that's your paycheck. And it turns out that with forbearance, they didn't really think it through all the way. They were just trying to you know, get something out the door and get some legislation passed. As a week and a half ago, it looked like if someone went into forbearance and wasn't making their payments, you, the lender, were still on the hook to forward those payments to the bondholders, even if you weren't receiving those payments from the borrower. So normally what happens is Sean Penn makes his mortgage payment, the loan servicer takes their little cut and forwards the rest of the loan servicer, and forwards the rest of the bondholder, excuse me. And then what was going on is people going into forbearance, well, they weren't making their payments, but the lender or the loan servicer still had to make those payments, even though they weren't collecting those payments. So that, that, that presented a big, I was calling it a liquidity crisis. The news media has elected to call it a cash crunch. It means basically the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a landlord who isn't getting rent payments from their tenant because they lost their job, but the landlord still have to make their mortgage payments. Everything is the same, just one step up or down. Yeah, and let's take that to its natural conclusion. So tenant isn't making their payments because the rules are some something suspended evictions, whatever. The landlord still has to make his payments, but oh wait, we have forbearance. So the landlord doesn't have to make his payments. Okay, but the loan servicer still has to make those payments to the bondholders. Okay, so the next step, the next logical step is that means we have to say loan services don't make the payments to the, uh, to the bondholders. But guess who the bondholder is? That's your 401k. That's your 401k. So it's all a big cycle. And if we take it to its natural conclusion, that just means plundering the 401ks and the retirement accounts of people that have retirement accounts to bail out people that don't. Yeah. So that's the big picture and a little bit speculative, but that's just some off the cuff commentary. So let's go over how the whole thing works. So Chase or JP Morgan will originate a loan and then sell that loan to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, right? Yep. And they will often retain the servicing. So you still think that JP Morgan Chase owns your loan. In reality, you're writing a check to them, but they don't own the loan anymore. They sold it off, but they still service the loan. So it still feels like they're the ones who own your loan, but they don't. Exactly. And then Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac packages like millions and millions and millions of these loans together as like some giant portfolio that people then buy and sell on Wall Street. Is that correct? Yeah, people on Wall Street or a South Korean teacher's pension fund or the California PERS retirement system for um, state employees. In either case, they buy that mortgage-backed security and then Fannie Mae warrants that you will get those payments even if the individual borrowers don't. That system works perfectly fine when at any given time only 2 or 3% of the loans are in default. When that skyrockets, like no one has you know, a year of reserves for that many people not making their payments. Yeah, so even though Chase isn't doing any more, you can still get your loans done by like Wells Fargo or Bank of America. Well, so big banks got more conservative than most other lenders. They've, they've gotten the most conservative. And I think that is because they have other sources of revenue, meaning grandma's social security is come, still coming through and grandma's social security check is deposited into her Wells Fargo checking account. So Wells Fargo still has that source of liquidity. A mortgage bank or a mortgage company that just does mortgages has no other source of business. So they have to navigate those waters and figure out how to continue making mortgages. Whereas the big banks are in a position to just not do mortgages, and they're fine with that. Um, you mentioned Wells Fargo. Here's a, here's a real life example of something that happened to a. Uh, so I have a landlord client who gets three or four mortgages a year. He probably gives um, and he gets enough business that he thinks it makes sense to like 
split his business and maintain multiple relationships. So like, what if Chris Mason dies? What then? So it makes sense for him to maintain a relationship also with Wells Fargo. So he gives me some of his business and he gives Wells Fargo some of his mortgage business. So he started a jumbo refinance, not a cash out refinance, just a rate and term refinance before coronavirus hit. Um, and then coronavirus hit and you know it's Wells Fargo, so they're slow as molasses. So he started in December and as of March, it still hadn't closed. They ended up denying his loan application and the reason they denied it was pretty telling. He has about $4 million in um, debt that's cash flow positive rental property. They said they wanted to see 50% of rental property balances in reserve in a checking or savings account. So they more or less told him, the only way we're going to do your finance there, dude, is if you have $2 million sitting in a checking account, which if you have $2 million in a checking account, you wouldn't be applying for more to begin with because you just buy cash. So it's a little bit absurd, but that's that highlights just how extreme some of the big banks are being with some of their underwriting criteria and um, going you know well above and beyond the basic Fannie Mae requirements. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a commercial loan where they want you to see, they want to see your liquid net worth for the amount of the loan amount somewhere. Yeah, which makes it absurd. Yeah, exactly. If you had that, you wouldn't need a mortgage. There was a joke that people used to make back in 2010. And like any joke, it's an exaggeration, but like any joke, it's got a kernel of truth. And the joke they used to make was that the only people that can qualify for a jumbo loan are people that don't need a loan to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about like, like what is forbearance? Because I think a lot of people have a misconception that forbearance is a good thing. From my research, it seems like it's not the best and should really only be taken if you super, super need it because there are some pretty big ramifications if you take it and you don't really need it. I would tend to agree with that conclusion. So I'm a loan originator. I'm going to focus on that. Um, certain things are protected classes. So a creditor or a lender cannot discriminate you on the basis of your gender, race, religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whether or not you took forbearance is not a protected class. So if you take forbearance today, granted the law says it doesn't impact your FICO score directly, so it will not impact your FICO score. That is true, assuming that everyone reports it correctly. It is also true that it still going to show as a forbearance on your credit report. So if rates continue to go down and you want to refinance in six or 12 months, or you want to buy another property or anything like that, creditors are well within their rights to discriminate against you on the basis of whether or not you took forbearance. And that can be anything from jacking your rate up to declining your loan entirely. They're allowed to do that. And so is, is that going to be something that lenders hold against you for six months, 12 months, seven years? We don't know. It remains to be seen. But on the loan origination front, that is something that to be aware of. It is also probably going to be the case, and I'm going to make a big prediction here that may or may not come to pass. So you know, millions of people in the last month have logged onto the loan website for their mortgage servicer or whatever, or called the call center and said, hey, I would like to exercise my right to forbearance. The federal government says I can. The federal government says I don't need to show any proof of hardship or anything else. Boom, let's do it. What's going to happen in two or three months when that fourth mortgage payment is due? It's a balloon payment. It's, you know, they, they want the last four months of payments all at once for someone that doesn't have a job, which is why they took forbearance to begin with. That's, that's going to be ugly. But then what's going to happen is everyone's going to go, okay, but, but the government said I can do a loan mod or I can extend it or add it to the end of the term. That's great. You got to call them and negotiate that and work it out and you might provide documentation. But you know, it's you and five to 10 million other people making that exact same phone call that exact same week. How do you think that's going to pan out? You know, here's how I think it's going to pan out is these loan servicers right now presumably are in the process of hiring mass, massive quantities of people to staff their call centers. And we say call center, but they're technically working from home right now. So you're going to sit on hold for five hours, right? And then you're finally going to get someone with a whole two and a half weeks of mortgage industry experience. And that's who you're going to be talking to to work out your loan mod. Good luck. Good luck is all I can say. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's a good deal. And when I heard about loan mods, I was like, I don't want a loan mod. I just want an extension on my loan. Just add like the three months I didn't pay 
to the end of my mortgage, but they're like, no, there's no such program. You have to do a full loan mod. So they'll reevaluate your entire, like, I guess they would just give you a whole new loan, right? Starting from scratch. Well, that's not quite what a loan mod is. A loan mod, it can be more or less anything that you and the creditor come to agree upon. So a very common solution is probably going to be to add those four missed payments to the end of your term. So your loan becomes, instead of a 30-year loan, a 30-year and four-month loan. But getting there, I think, is going to be a lot harder than most people expect. You got to figure loan servicing at the end of the day is debt collection. It's a debt collection agency, right? I mean, there's not much difference, right? In the best of times, you don't talk to them. It doesn't matter. You write your check for your mortgage or you set up your online payment or whatever, and it just goes through and that's that. I don't know if you remember this. There was a scandal back in the Morris meltdown called robo-signing. Does that ring a bell for you? Or do you remember that? Nope. So robo-signing, people were in the, you know, the, the 2008 crisis involved a lot of foreclosures and a lot of loan servicers to get through the backlog efficiently. They were pressuring people to hit quota and to, you know, get through this many loan files a day, whatever, what have you. And these were not necessarily the most highly paid people. These were people that had just lost their job because of the meltdown. So this is the job they could get. So they took it. They didn't have any industry experience. They didn't necessarily want to be in finance. And now they're being hit with all these crazy quotas. So they just started fudging their numbers to make it look like they were doing what they were supposed to do. So in terms of people calling to negotiate their loan mod, I mean, the person you're talking to is going to have a quoted hit and they're going to have this long checklist and who knows how it's going to pan out. But I think it's going to be robo signing 2.0. That's just wild speculation, but it would not shock me at all. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah, because when I was talking to, I guess, uh, my loan servicer about my own personal mortgage to see if I can get a, you know, forbearance, that's when they told me about loan mods. And it basically sounded like they're going to do a whole new, like, it's like getting a refinance on your property where they would recheck your employment. They would check if you have good enough DTIs to get a certain credit score or a certain credit, a certain interest rate. Well, and here's a big difference with that. How sharp did you feel the person you were talking to was? This person was actually not bad. Like she seemed well qualified. And on top of that, it seemed like she had this conversation at least like 30 times in the past week or so. Absolutely. So what I think is going to happen in two and a half, three months is that person you spoke to, if she did seem pretty competent, well qualified, she's going to be the supervisor and she's going to have 50 brand new hires under her. I don't think she's going to be around. I think she's going to be promoted because they're going to have to hire so many people to handle the volume of phone calls. So the person that you talked to that was sharp, she's still going to be there, but you're not going to be able to talk to her because she's going to be the boss. Does getting a loan mod affect your credit at all? Yeah. I'll I'll be perfectly honest. I haven't seen that come up a bunch because I wasn't doing mortgage in 2010. I came into the industry in 2014. So by the time I came into the industry, all that had mostly already happened. But it is and was the case that you could certainly refinance a loan that was in a loan mod or buy another house. It wasn't wasn't held against you. It wasn't a FICO hit or anything like that. And that was because in many cases following the crash, like around 2011, loan servicers and banks started calling the borrowers and proactively offering loan mods to people that weren't even in any hardship, which was really weird. I mean, does it like show up on your credit somewhere that says, oh, this guy got a loan mod? Just like it says you got a forbearance at some certain date. Yeah, but it's not a black mark because again, in many cases, the creditors or loan servicers or banks, they were proactively initiating it. So like just use my own father-in-law as an example. Um, He, you know, the bank called him and offered him a loan mod. They offered him 10 years of interest only payments. He didn't ask for that. He didn't miss any payments. He wasn't having any problems. They just offered that. He was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So that type of thing is not a hit on your credit if they proactively offer it, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. But a forbearance is a black mark because you're basically saying, I don't want to make these payments during these times. We're, yeah. I mean, we don't know how it's going to pan out, but again, it's not a protected class. So if a creditor wants to discriminate against you on that basis, they are more than welcome to. Hmm. Okay. Very cool. And how has the whole landscape changed in terms of purchasing properties during shelter in place? What kind of changes have you seen in that? 
So, I mean, I, I'm not meeting clients in person, no big surprise there. Um, you know, just like everyone else, we're sheltered. I'm still in the office, obviously, as you can see, but your audience can't. But we're not really meeting people in person, so that's not a huge change. That is what it is. You know, you're starting to see realtors do virtual tours and stuff like that. People out there are still buying and selling. Right now, you know, the sellers, they just got three months of runway. They, the sellers, so the, the motivated sellers, the ones that have to sell because they lost their job and all that, they just got three months of runway from forbearance. So we haven't really seen those properties hit the market yet. They probably will in a little bit. For now, people that are financially able to weather the storm and wait are just not selling their house. They're just waiting. You know, what's the big rush? Just wait for the pandemic to end so I can have an open house and have you know a bunch of buyers come through and all that. So yeah, it is true that there's less demand, but there's also less supply. So we haven't seen any sharp price decreases as of April 29th, 2020. That could change in a week or two weeks. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And are you seeing like less inventory, more inventory? Less inventory because people are pulling their houses from the market until this is over. That's what they think they're they think they're just going to wait a month or two and it'll all be over. The reality is this is they're trying to wait it out. What about buyer sentiment? People are still buying. I mean, I'm here in the Bay Area, which is a tech-driven area. And if there's any type of job where you could work remotely, it would you know be, it would be tech. And so far, I haven't heard of any tech workers getting fired. The most extreme case I've heard of a tech worker is someone who had just gotten a 40% pay raise, had that 40% pay raise pulled back. Outside the tech sector, people are still certainly losing jobs. But that, I mean, that was never the primary driver of real estate values in the Bay Area. Anyways. The primary driver of real estate values in the Bay Area has been tech for some number of years. It's true. I did see that Yelp had to lay off like a thousand people and furlough another thousand or something like that. But that was probably the biggest one from the tech side. And that actually probably makes a lot of sense because I'm I'm not a Yelp expert. I don't know everything about Yelp, but it seems like Yelp reviews by and large are restaurant and places that you go to do things. So if all those people are not paying money to advertise in the Yelp platform because no one can go visit their restaurant, then it makes sense that Yelp would have a, a, a you know liquidity crunch. That actually makes sense. I hadn't heard that, but I believe you. Exactly. And like you were saying, most of the buyers here in the Bay Area are in tech. So they're making maybe 100, 200K a year, or they're married with 400K total. And then they can buy these you know, $1 million, $1.5 million houses. Whereas the people who are being affected the most are the ones kind of more on the blue collar side. And they're working like at restaurants or they have small businesses. And they weren't really buying houses to begin with. But the way they're impacting the real estate market is they're usually in the renter class. And now they can't pay their rent. So... Yeah, no, one third of renters in the United States of America did not make their full rent payment on time on April 1st of this month. So lenders are starting to be very skeptical of counting that rental income for people that are real estate investors buying rental properties or doing refinances on rental properties. So we're seeing we're seeing that pan out because how can you quote unquote count the rental income when one third of tenants didn't pay their rent on time? There are estimates, again, this is April 29th, but there are some estimates out there saying that about half of renters may not pay their May 1st rent payment. Yeah. Can you talk about that market? Like how are lenders looking at rental property deals right now? Sure. So each lender is tacking a different course and they're picking where they want to be. Traditionally, everyone kind of intuitively understood that there's a relationship between how risky the loan is and what your interest rate is. That is becoming more true in that lenders that are taking a more conservative approach. For example, one of my go-to lenders will not count rental income at all. They don't care if it's on your tax returns. They don't care if you can show leases. They don't care that you can show the deposits. They are not counting the rental income at all. Lo and behold, that same lender seems to have absolutely phenomenal rates compared to the rest of the market. So they're not taking any risk in terms of rental income. Therefore, their rates are really good. Then we can go across the spectrum. Another example is a lender that they got one of my other go-to lenders, and I'm making a checklist so I talk about him. They will count the rent as normal, but they want verification as of the month of the loan closing that you collected your rent payments at the beginning of the month. So if I originate a loan on May 10th, and let's say it's going to close on June 10th, 
at the 11th hour, they're going to look at the bank statements and they want to verify that as of you know early June, you collected all the rent payments from all your tenants. And if, let's say you've got six doors paying you rent, if one or two of those doors don't pay you rent, they might deny your loan and it'll be an 11th hour denial. And it's a little frustrating because as the real estate investor, as the home buyer, as the realtor, as the loan officer, I have no clue if all six of your tenants are going to pay their rent on June 1st. I have no way of knowing that. So that's another approach that one of my go-to lenders is taking. And what they'll do is they'll say, okay, you know, you don't have to provide any of that documentation, but if you don't, we're just going to assume that 25% of your tenants aren't paying rent. And this is on top of the normal 25% vacancy factor they already consider. So that's also a potential deal killer. And that one's frustrating because it will be an 11th hour loan denial because you don't know on May 10th when you go under contract, you don't know who's going to pay rent on June 1st. It's unknown and unknowable, right? And I've never seen a creditor get that granular into, you know, did unit one pay its rent? Did unit five pay its rent? I've never seen them that granular. Usually what they do, if you've owned the property well, they're just going to look at your tax returns, take a long-term two-year average or one-year average, call it a day. Let's see. Another lender, here's one. Another lender is going to give you a choice. They say either, we're not going to count your rental income if you don't need it. That's that's an option you can take. Or we're going to require reserves in the amount of the grand total of the Fannie Mae requirements. So Fannie Mae already requires six months of subject, of, um, subject property reserves if it's a rental property and a certain percentage of unpaid balances for other rental properties you already own. They're saying, okay, that plus six months for each rental property. So that plus six months, or we're not going to count the rent, take your pick. And we're seeing other lenders say that we're not going to count retirement accounts. And the reason they're doing that is because all of these Airbnb hosts were counting, you know, when an Airbnb host bought a rental property as an investment property and they disclosed that it was going to be rental, Fannie Mae required six months of reserves. You can count your 401ks, you can count your retirement account to satisfy the reserve requirement. Now, all of a sudden, these landlords are unwilling to actually use those retirement accounts to make their mortgage payments. So now lenders are saying, okay, we're not going to count retirement accounts, or we're going to count it at 70% of value, or we're going to require that all the stocks in that 401k be sold and it be just liquid cash sitting there because the stock market is um, you know, doing its thing right now. And then I've got another lender that one of my other lenders I work with, they haven't changed the rental income calculations at all. Is that going to last another month or two? I don't know. We'll see. Mm-hmm. What are the typical DTI requirements for rental properties? Uh, I mean, again, each lender is tacking a different course. Fannie Mae has not changed her basic requirements, but which traditionally were 49.9%. But we're starting to see lenders say, you know, 47%, 45%, 43%, 40%, 38%. And it's the case, again, that it's going to come back to the higher risk. You know, the lender doing the higher risk loans is going to have a higher interest rate. And the lenders that are more conservative and have more restrictive requirements are doing a, uh, you know, they're going to have a better interest rate. I mean, I'm fortunate that I, as a mortgage broker, being signed up with three different lenders, I get to work that spectrum and, you know, go find the right house for that loan. I do not envy loan officers that are tied to one bank or one lender or one mortgage company, because then you can only offer that particular, you know, suite of offerings and however conservative or liberal they are. Yeah, it totally makes sense. What are the current rates that we're seeing for both the purchase for owner-occupied properties versus investment properties? So we're seeing something really interesting pan out. As I'm sure you know, the Treasury Department announced unlimited buying of mortgage-backed securities. So if you are doing however many Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac type loans you are doing, you know, the government, essentially the government will buy that. But the private sector is the one who allocates that those funds and decides who actually gets it. So rates are really low for owner-occupied single-family houses, purchase or rate and term refinance. Rates have gone up for everything other than what I just described. All right. Do you want to talk about like verification of employment and how important it is to make sure that you are still employed before you actually close on your property? Sure. So traditionally, the basic family requirement was that a final verbal verification of employment must be done within 10 days of closing. Given the mass numbers of layoffs that have occurred and are occurring, what we're starting to see is lenders tighten that up and say, you know, I don't care that you were employed a week and a half ago. 
if we're funding the loan today on May 4th, I want to know that you are employed as of May 4th. That's uncommon. Most places are saying within 48 hours or within 72 hours, but we're starting to see these last minute verifications of employment, which is hitting HR departments because HR departments for however many years have been, you know, they, they know this is coming. They know that mortgage lenders verify employment at the 11th hour, but traditionally it wasn't actually the 11th hour, it was within a week and a half. So traditionally, if an employer or an HR department verifies your employment and they take two to three days to get to it, it doesn't matter because we ordered that 10 days out, right? So whether it takes them two days, three days, five days, seven days, doesn't matter as long as we have it before loan funding. Now what's starting to happen is your HR department, if you know if they're not verifying your employment like within 24 to 48 hours, it could delay your closing. The only way you can really tack that and what we're doing is sending like a pretty stock vanilla email out saying, hey, this is what's going on. Please reach out to your HR department and find a human person that picks up the phone and answers emails and tell them you're buying a house and tell them they need to verify, you know, as soon as they get that request from the lender. Yeah. I heard a crazy story at a broker tour where someone was about to purchase a house and close escrow. And I think maybe three days before escrow was supposed to close, they had to do a verification of employment. And then that's when they found out that he was actually laid off, but he didn't even get told that he was laid off. He found out because of the verification of employment. Yeah. He's like, what? It's like, yeah, it was a Monday. Sorry. You're now laid off because of COVID. I hate to laugh at the misfortune of others, but yeah, that's a sign of the times. And that's exactly why they're doing this. Because in that case, you've got a borrower that acting in good faith, you know, he's willing to sign whatever paperwork you want saying, hey, I'm still employed. You know, there's little attestations coming out where you're at the closing table, you're signing something, hey, something saying, hey, to the best of my knowledge, my income has not and will not be affected and all that. And that that person you talked about, that borrower, as far as he knew, that was a true statement. His employer didn't even let him know. So that's why they're doing those last minute verifications of employment. And that's why they're asking the employer directly. They're not asking you. They're asking the employer, the HR department, because that's who actually knows whether or not you have a job tomorrow. You don't know. I don't know. And then there are some people as well who are asking like their lender, hey, I know we're going to close very soon. How can I apply for a forbearance program? And then you know the lender is like, hey, you cannot be asking these questions because now you are, right? It's like fraud, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you're taking out a 30-year loan. Your intent needs to be to make your payments every month for the next 360 months. That needs to be your intent. If you're already planning on forbearance going into it, I mean, you're part of the problem. That's not okay at all. Yeah. So are there anything else that we want to talk about in terms of how the lending industry is affected by COVID-19? Yeah. One thing that's interesting is go back in time four months. So I'm some, some consumer, someone's calling me, they want to buy a house, whatever. They say, you know, you know, where are we going to broker this loan to? What's the rate? All that, those sorts of questions. Three months ago, like the biggest thing and the first thing that I would look at is the rates that were offered by different lenders and, and where they compete there. Now it's starting to switch. Now the first question is, are they going to get it done given the unique particulars of this person's exact financial situation. So are they going to get it done? It's not my first question. Rate is somewhere down the middle of the list. Because again, if you don't close, then your interest rate is 0%, your payments are $0, and your mortgage balance is $0 because you didn't get a mortgage, didn't close. So the first question now is, are they going to get it done? That's changing. A very powerful nine words, and this applies, if you're a fellow loan officer listening to this, this applies to you. If you are a realtor listening to this, this applies to you. If you are a boss at a restaurant listening to this, this applies to you. If you are a landlord talking to your tenants who are having problems making their rent payments, this applies to you. I think the most powerful nine words right now are, so here is what we're going to do. Just having that plan and just being like, you know, wherever you are in the economy, just being that person that can say, so here's what we're going to do, Sean, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, whatever that ends up being, I think that's the most powerful nine words of the current market. Something else worth talking about is cash out refinances. About a week ago, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which is the federal agency uh, led by a guy that's not very popular right now that oversees Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they announced some servicing relief for loan servicers. So if someone goes into forbearance, 
and forbearance per the law can last up to, to a year. Remember I mentioned earlier that loan servicers are still on the hook to make those payments to bondholders, even if they aren't collecting those payments from borrowers. Do you remember when I talked about that? The FHFA announced that that is no longer the case past the first four months. You only have to cover four months of payments if your borrowers aren't paying. An exception to that is for cash out refinances. So for cash out refinances, the loan servicer still has to forward those payments even if they aren't receiving them for more than four months. So we're starting to see different lenders tighten up and limit cash out refinances. So it is currently the case that cash is king. And just FYI, that cash out refinances, that's the hardest hit segment. If you want to do a 70% LTV cash out refinance for a triplex rental property, like that's every single thing high risk about the current environment. It can still get done, but it's not going to necessarily be all that cheap in terms of uh, discount points and fees and rates. Yeah. And if they can't make those, pay- like like you're saying, the lenders still have to make their payments to the bondholders, right, in the market. And what happens if they can't make those payments? Where does the money come from? That's a big question. And that that's the challenge. I mean, you have to make the payments. Just like anything else, you got to make your rent payments. You got to make your mortgage pay- payments. They got to pay the bondholders. If they can't, at some point, that's where bankruptcy protection comes into place. We have a framework for businesses going broke in the United States called bankruptcy. And that's where that goes. You go bankrupt. And you don't pay your bondholders. And those bondholders, ultimately, remember, that's your 401k, Sean. That's my 401k. That's your IRA. That's that's us. We're the bondholders at the end of the day. Yeah. And ultimately, that's the risk they took when they purchased that investment. Like It's relatively safe. But in the worst case, if they go bankrupt, then you liquidate assets and you get what you get. Interesting. I mean... Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac probably wouldn't go bankrupt, right? At worst case, you'd probably get some kind of bailout to keep them afloat. At this point, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are not, they're not owned by the federal government. They're controlled by the federal government. So we still kind of talk and act like they are private enterprises. And we call them the GSEs, the government-sponsored enterprises. But now that it's like the government-controlled enterprises, I think it's a little bit different. I don't think they can get bailed out, especially when the federal government is printing $4.2 trillion. Back in 2008, when the meltdown happened, the federal government printed a grand total of about $1.2 trillion, depending on how you were counting. In the last two months, they printed $4.2 trillion. So at the end of the day, that is a solution. I'm not necessarily saying it's the best solution. I'm actually vaguely concerned that after a short-term possible period of deflation, I'm vaguely concerned that once that $4.2 trillion hits Main Street, we might start to see some pretty significant inflation. I mean, you get, I mean printing $4.2 trillion. The size of the American economy is like $14 trillion. So they're printing like 25% of that, close to a third. Yeah. Now, what about HELOCs? Are HELOCs still, well, how do you call it? You had to call it issued, originated? Yeah, so that we're starting to see them get more conservative as well. We, we're starting to see HELOCs tighten up just like everything else. Nothing, nothing. What, what happened in 2008, just for historical context for those that aren't aware, is you would have your $150,000 HELOC as your oh crap fund. So you're like, okay, well, I'm good. I, you know, I got my HELOC. I'm good. So if something bad happens, I got my HELOC. I'm ready. And then what they would do is they would, you know, in 2009, 2010, you would get a letter in the mail saying that your HELOC's frozen. You can't. So do not bet on your HELOC being around a month from now, six months from now, a year from now. It may or may not be. It's unknown and unknowable. Right now, cash is king. Yeah, I've heard that someone who had like a hundred thousand dollar HELOC account gets a letter in the mail saying, "Oh, your HELOC account is now on like twenty thousand. So you just lost eighty thousand of your HELOC, just like that." Yep. From what you've seen so far and what you've known about the 2008 crisis, have you seen anything that has been different from the last crisis to right now? So I entered the industry in 2014. I did not live as a loan officer through 2008. So I don't really, not really in a place to comment on that beyond rumors and speculation that I've heard from the old guys. So I'm not going to answer that one. Okay, sure. Do you have any predictions for how the lending industry will change in the next year or two based on what's going on now? It remains to be seen. I think it is going to be the case that loan, that ultimately creditors start taking different approaches 
you know, since 2012 or so, it's been the case that, hey, it's a Fannie Mae loan. It's good. We're backed by the full faith and credit of the United States federal government. Nothing bad could happen because it's a Fannie Mae loan or a Freddie Mac loan. And now we're starting to see that's not necessarily true. So I think we're going to start to see it's going to be more difficult for consumers to navigate because, like I said, Wells Fargo didn't put on their website that we need 50% of unpaid rental property balances in reserve. They didn't put that on their website anywhere. You, you didn't find out about that until after, until after my client was, you know, ordered the appraisal, was in underwriting, had like gone through, you know, the first 99 yards of the 100-yard process, and then they denied his loan at the last minute. And it's tough for consumers to navigate that because they don't put their guideline changes anywhere that you can see. All you can do if you're calling the creditors directly is call them and hope for the best. Again, I'm pretty fortunate that I'm a mortgage broker, so I can. They show me their guidelines, so I can see them, and I'm able to navigate it. But if I was a consumer right now, I'd be like, "How do you navigate this? I mean, how, you know, how do you know which lender is going to count your your bonus income and which ones aren't? You know, it's it's tough." All right, Chris. Well, this has been a very fantastic conversation. Do you have any last tips for our listeners who are looking to purchase a home during shelter in place? I'm going to give you one final thought. That's not quite that. A lot of people for a long time have always said that a mortgage is a hedge against inflation. And the, the logic there is that the federal government just printed $4.2 trillion. In the short term, that money has not made it onto Main Street and it's not made it into the wider consumer-driven economy because it needs to filter down and we need to end shelter in place so you can get out there and buy stuff. Eventually, that $4.2 trillion is going to hit the economy. And I think that it must create inflation or it will create inflation. And so what that looks like, let's say a Big Mac goes up, you know, costs 25% more, but you get a pay raise and you make 25% more, you might think it's more or less a wash, right? So the big Mac costs 25% more, your rent goes up 25%, your income goes up 25%, everything's 25% more expensive, so it's all a wash. An exception to that is the 30-year fixed interest rate mortgage that you took out, That doesn't, the balance doesn't go up 25%. So relative to inflation-adjusted dollars, inflation is really good for borrowers in general, bad for creditors in general. So I think there is an argument to be made of like, you know, hey, if everything's going to, if we're going to have 25, 30%, I, I'm just making those numbers. I don't think it'll actually be that high. But if we are going to have inflation, having a mortgage is a hedge against that if you think that printing $4.2 trillion might cause inflation. In terms of tips for those first-time buyers, make sure you're realistic about whether or not your job is going to continue. Think about what you do. Think about supply and demand. You don't want to get into a house and immediately have problems making the payments. That's not a good not a good place to be. And also, yeah, just a lot of the stuff for your average, typical first-time home buyer has not changed. It's still the Bay Area. It's still competitive. There's still going to be multiple offers in the property. You still got to write the strongest and best offer. And you still got to remember that the house does not sell to the average offer price. It sells to the highest bidder and the strongest offer. That doesn't change. Yeah. Quick question. Does, like, if you're on unemployment, you know, you're still making some income. Unemployment doesn't count. There are some temporary sources of, of income that do count. For example, paternity leave or maternity leave, that, that can count at some level. Um, but that's very different than unemployment. That's, you know, you, you, you took a month or two off work to have a baby and you've got a job waiting for you and you're going to go back to work. That sort of thing counts. Open-ended temporary stuff like unemployment does not count and hopefully never counts. It shouldn't count. I mean, that would be reckless, right? Absolutely. But just as a side note out there, right now, it's actually... Not that bad because of the CARES Act, you're getting extra $600 a week. So sometimes you actually make more money unemployed than working like as an Amazon courier. Sure. I, I'm not disagreeing with that logic at all, but think about it from the bank's perspective. It's a 30-year contract. Yep. They're definitely worried about the next two or three months as well, but they're also worried about the next 30 years. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So here's the crazy thing. When Shelter in Place first got announced, it was supposed to be like a three-week thing, right? From like mid-March to early April. And then, all right, we got extended until May. Fine, we could deal with that. Now it got sent another month until beginning of June, and it might even go further. Who knows, right? So 
yeah, every month that this goes on, this crisis gets worse and worse and worse. So we'll see where we're at at the end of it. Yeah. And I'm not an epidemiologist or anything like that. One thing I'm grateful for is that there's one country tacking a very different course and trying something very different because then that gives us a pseudo experiment. It's not actually an experiment, but it is an experiment like thing where everyone tries one thing and one entity tries something else. So I'm sure you, I don't know if you've seen it in the news. Uh, Sweden is taking a very different approach to this and I'm not going to get into it because again, I'm not an epidemiologist, but anyone who's curious about different approaches and different outcomes, I think the question at the end of the day, because let's be real, this isn't going to be the last crazy pandemic flu-like thing that happened. We've had SARS, we've had mad cow disease. It's going to happen again. And I think the big question is going to be how did Sweden make out during coronavirus? Because they took a very different approach. And I don't know the result. You know, I kind of do want to talk about it because I did see some small posts and it seemed like they weren't doing the best. Like a lot of people got infected, right? Again, I'm not, neither was a qualified to comment on this, but whatever, we'll talk about it because we're here and we're having a conversation and we're all sheltering in place. We're all bored out of our minds. Exactly. So Sweden, for those that aren't, aren't aware, they by and large did not lock down like the rest of Europe, the rest of East Asia, the rest of the world, more or less. Their bars are still open, their nightclubs are still open, their restaurants are still open, they're still doing that stuff. They you know, spread their tables out a little bit at the restaurant, but their restaurant's still open. One thing in retrospect, it looks like they did screw up, is they told people that work at senior assisted care facilities not to wear masks unless the particular elderly person sitting in front of you is showing symptoms. So like they've had more casualties than the other Nordic countries and other European countries per capita and the United States, but 90% of that is concentrated in um, the old folks homes. Again, not an epidemiologist, but I strongly suspect that one big takeaway is going to be whatever else you do, if you're working with old people, put a damn mask on, no matter what else you do. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm actually curious to see like what has the bigger impact, the uh, economic ramifications for being in shelter in place for, you know, shutting down the economy for two and a half months or, you know, people getting affected and sick. But something I said on day one was, hey, guess what? Recessions kill people too. Yeah. I mean, there's this uh, widely held claim, and I think it's credible, I'm not sure, um, but that in the three years following the 2008 mortgage meltdown, there were an extra 500,000 cancer deaths around the world that would not have happened had the meltdown not happened. So we're not talking about suicide. We're not talking about depression. We're not talking about substance abuse. We're not talking about starvation. We're talking about cancer deaths. There's an extra half million cancer deaths, surplus cancer deaths beyond the baseline number of cancer deaths that happens in a normal year. Wow. So recessions kill people too. I think the important thing is at the end of again, we're not really qualified to talk about. You might have a PhD in epidemiology that I don't know about. Do you? No, definitely not. No. Okay. But I think it's going to be important for the people that are the scientists to look at the data, do the compare and contrast, look at Sweden and places that took different approaches. You know, the Bay Area and New York City, why do they have such different outcomes? Why are we more or less doing okay, whereas New York City is not? Why is Italy doing so horribly? That sort of thing. Yeah. It would be a good uh, like retrospective when we look back on this maybe two or three years from now. And, you know, we're living in a textbook moment, right? Like, just like in 2008 was a huge financial crash. We're living in a time when the whole world shut down for two and a half months. So we'll see how everything shakes up after this. This is true. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for this very interesting conversation. It was a pleasure having you on the show again. How can people get in contact with you? Sure. My name is Chris Mason. My phone number is 415-846-9211. My website is www.eastbaysmortgagebroker.com, E-A-S-T-B-A-Y-S, mortgagebroker.com. Uh, my NMLS number is 1220177. I'm sure you're going to post my website and all that stuff in the commentary below. Is that correct? Yep. You can find all the information on the show notes on our website, everythingrei.com slash podcast. Cool. Yep. That's how to reach me. Perfect. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's a pleasure having you on. Yeah, you too, Sean. I'll talk to you later.
Cool. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Banks are now ultra conservative and have increased their lending requirements. Most non-QM loan programs have disappeared overnight. Be prepared to put down at least 20% and have a high credit score to qualify. You also need to show proof that you're unemployed within three days of closing escrow. And don't be surprised if the lender requires you to have a sizable amount of liquid reserves before granting the loan. Things are changing every day, so be sure to call Chris if you have any questions about the lending industry in this current environment. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.